Okay, well, me and Josh were starting with chapter number one tonight, and uh, I was talking with Les this week, and I said, honestly, with the study that we're doing, I'm debating on how uh, how far to take it or how in-depth to go, because I know I'm kind of skipping through from book to book a little bit and uh, uh, just picking out things here and there. And honestly, if I wanted to go a little bit deeper with it, uh, we could spend a long time with this. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, places where you see this theme recurring throughout Scripture. And I could take it all the way through the Old Testament, really. Uh, but I don't want to belabor it too long. We're still going to be in it for a little bit longer. I want to jump in through a few other things uh, throughout the Old Testament. But um, but it just is cementing in to me, hopefully it's helping to you all too, uh, just about how how God weaved the story together, how his same theme has been from the beginning to the end, uh, how it really is true that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we see his His heart and his dealing with humanity. We see how he is sovereign in his plan and in his working. Uh, we see how, how much of a premium that God puts on faith. Mm-hmm. And at the same time as God is sovereign, that he has given mankind a free will to respond to the things that God is doing, either in rejection or in faith. And so we've seen this all the way through. And so uh, uh, with what we're looking at here, just kind of tracing salvation through the Old Testament and uh, even kind of like the Old Testament version of Christianity, if you will. And and hopefully you all understand what I mean. It wasn't Christianity in the Old Testament. But people were saints. People were, uh, as I've said a few times, Old Testament saved. Okay, because the Bible tells us uh, uh, in uh, in Hebrews in the passage that I've quoted often, by faith it was counted to them for righteousness. Right? They believed God, and it was accounted to them for righteousness. And that's what we're talking about with with uh, salvation. It is being declared righteous by God, right? And we know that the Bible tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. That we are all unclean. Right, All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, but then the same Bible tells us that we can be declared righteous by God. And so that is basically judicially pardoned because God is uh, the judge of all mankind, right? And so with that, we stand before him guilty because we have all sinned. We all deserve punishment. The wages of sin is death. But the Bible tells us the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we find out that there is a means by which our sins can be erased and pardoned, that they can be atoned for, they can be covered over, that we can be declared righteous contrary to what we really are. And it is only by the imputation, by God putting the righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. And as we look through the Old Testament, we find God doing that in the Old Testament. We find ways that God had made that men could be considered righteous in spite of their sin and in spite of their unrighteousness. From the very beginning, the first one that we looked at, and I'm not going to recount all of them, don't worry. Okay? But from the very first one we looked at was Adam and Eve sinned. And the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. They deserve death. The wages of sin was death. And God says, okay... I'm going to allow there to be a substitute. I'm going to allow something innocent that didn't participate in this sin with you to die in your place 
so that this death can pass over you so that you can be declared righteous. And so the animal was slain. They were clothed with the coats of skin and that righteousness, the righteousness of that animal, so-called there, clothed them so that they didn't die, but they had righteousness, right? And it was a picture of Christ. It was a picture of the salvation to come. We find that if any man be in Christ, and that's that picture of being enrobed, wrapped up in the righteousness, clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And we are reckoned to be saved, to be righteous, to be cleansed and clean through him. And we see that all throughout the Old Testament, over and over again. And as I've said many times already, the reason why this is important is that a lot of people have the idea that in the Old Testament, people were saved by their good works. People were saved by keeping the law. People were saved by doing this good deed or by doing that good deed. And we see all the way through the Old Testament that none of them were righteous. Many of them weren't even good people. And that God saved them in spite of their sin. And God saved them through his mercy, through his grace, through his love, by the means of his provision, by his providing, rather than anything that man had to do. All that men had to do was accept it. After they accepted it, obedience followed it, right? The works that they did followed it, not preceding it. And so they believed God. It was counted to them for righteousness. And since they believed, their belief, and I said this on Sunday, your belief affects your actions, right? Mm -hmm. What you believe affects what you do. And so if you believe that God's going to send a flood and wipe out the entire earth, and he says you can build a boat, right? You're going to build a boat. (laughs) If Noah didn't believe, he wouldn't have built the boat. But it was the belief that saved him, not the building the boat. Everybody follow me on all this so far? Yeah. That's why all this is important. So we've been following this all the way throughout Scripture. Last week, what we looked at was uh, Israel's failure at Kadesh Barnea. God had brought them out of Egypt. He had plagued the Egyptians. He had killed the firstborn. He had uh, saved the people of Israel at Passover, right? He had brought them out of captivity, out of bondage, out of slavery, Uh, He baptized them through the Red Sea, so to speak, right? They saw a great miracle. Their enemy lay dead, washed up behind them on the the banks of the the sea. And then he kept them and fed them and protected them in the wilderness. He took them to Sinai. He revealed his law to show them after they had been in Egypt all that time uh, what righteousness looked like. And so it was God's effort to to reveal himself to them and what right living would look like after all they had ever known was Egypt, right? So it was an effort for God to get Egypt out of his people, okay? And so he revealed himself to them through his law. Uh, They heard his voice. They seen the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. They seen all kinds of things going on there. And then he brought them to the promised land. He had told them and he had been promising since Abraham's day uh, that he was going to give this whole land of Canaan to them. He promised them a land filled uh, to flowing with milk and honey, right? A good land, a fat land, one that they could prosper and they could grow in, right? He had promised this to them. And whenever they came to Kadesh Barnea, they sent the 12 spies out. And 10 of them came back and says, yes, it's as he said, it is a land that flows with milk and honey, but it's inhabited. 
Not only is it inhabited, there are giants, there are fortified cities, there are armies, there are groups that are much more warlike than what we are, much more experienced in war, because the Israelites were brick makers. They were slaves. They weren't warriors. And so they said, we're not able to do what God has for us to do. We're not able of our own strength and our own power to go in and take the land. And God didn't require them of their own strength and of their own power, their own ability to take the land. He required them by faith to follow him and allow him to give them the land, right? But they didn't believe. They refused to trust God, instead relying on their own abilities, on their own reasoning, and they rejected God. They rejected God's offer. And because of that, they were condemned to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until all of those who refused to go in died. And then all of their children that were 20 years old and younger, all the ones that were born during that 40 years, they would be the ones to go in and possess the land. Okay? And so what we saw from that last week is, first of all, in the matter of salvation, uh, God is always looking toward faith. The Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please him, right? Mm -hmm. And so he wasn't looking for them to come up and prove themselves to him. He didn't say, okay, here's the promised land. Show me what you can do. Here it is. Go and claim it if you can. Here it is. Go and do all you can to make it happen. He says, no, if you will follow me, I'm going to give it to you. If you will follow me, I will make your enemies to flee before you. If you follow me, I'll send hornets to drive them out. If you follow me, I will give you the victory. But you have to trust me. And so with salvation, we learn from that, that mankind really wants to save themselves. Mm -hmm. Mankind looks at it and they measure it out and they try to figure it out on their own, by their own abilities. And they say, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to try to prove myself to God. I'm going to try to prove myself worthy. I'm going to try to overcome this myself. I'm going to try to defeat this myself. I'm going to go and show God what I can do. No. Or to fall back in despair and say, there's no way I can do this. Some people look at God as if he's unfair and say, there's no way to please him. I can't be good enough. I can't keep the law. And that is an accurate assessment, right? Just like when the Israelites came to Kadesh Barnea, they looked into the promised land and they said, there's no way we're able of our own power to conquer. That's an accurate assessment. But what God desires for us to do is realize we can't do it, so we put our faith in him and his word because he can do what we can. So that's a matter of salvation, right? But I believe the main application of that story, of that lesson that we learned from them, is that the children of Israel would have already been the equivalent of saved. Because, as I said, they were brought out of bondage. They were brought out of Egypt, which was a type of sin, right? They were a redeemed people. They were God's chosen people. They were his peculiar people, right? And they needed to learn to follow him and trust him to obey him in their lives. Because trusting and obeying brought blessing, right? And so as they came through the, the wilderness, God revealed himself, uh, even through the plagues, through the Red Sea, through the providing of food and of water and all the different things. God proved himself that he could be trusted, that he could be relied upon, that he was good, that he was holy, that he was powerful. He proved himself to them 
And then whenever they came to Kadesh Barnea, they had the choice. Are we going to trust God and follow him on to overcoming these enemies? Are we going to trust him to help us to win the battles? Are we going to trust him to help claim these lands and take these possessions and these blessings? Or are we going to trust in ourselves or refuse and forever be stuck back in the wilderness? And for us as Christians, whenever we're trying to live this life by our own wisdom, by our own abilities, by our own strength, what we end up doing is we stay in the wilderness. We don't get victory. We don't experience the blessings. The land's not flowing with milk and honey. We are having to, uh, every time that the well runs dry, get upset, get aggravated, get frustrated, get doubtful, and wonder why has God abandoned us? And then God provides, and we realize, well, he took care of us this time, and then we forget before the next time. And that ends up being the existence of our Christian life is stumbling around in the wilderness from problem to problem to problem, never trusting God, until hopefully... It comes a point in time whenever that old man dies, whenever we can mortify the deeds of the flesh, whenever we can reckon him to be dead and yield instead of to him, to the spirit, trust in God, and then we can take the promised land, right? And so as Christians, the promised land is a picture of the victorious Christian life. It is the life that is surrendered to God's will. It's the life where we say, yeah, I have a will. I have a desire, but not my will be done. I'm going to trust God. I don't know how to do this, but I know I can trust God and he will lead me through it. Uh, I know that my flesh has been this direction, but God's word says it's sin. So Lord, help me overcome the sin in my life, right? Those are the battles, the victories. There's giants that we face. There's uh, walled cities that we face, but we walk into it with that relationship of relying on God, walking with him daily. And over time, we conquer out victory after victory after victory, and we gain more and more ground, and we see more peace. We see more uh, prosperity, not necessarily in financial terms, but we see more peace and prosperity in this Christian life because we've been walking with him, following him, and he is giving us that land. That's what God desires for us. And as I said, um, I definitely don't have this figured out yet. I spend a lot more time in the wilderness than I want to. Okay, But God doesn't desire for us to, as Christians to live our lives in the wilderness. He desires for us to trust him and the prescription that he has laid out, the plan that he's laid out, and follow after him, his spirit, follow his will in the way that he's uh, prescribed for us so that we can see those blessings, we can see those victories. Right? Mm-hmm. And so we saw that in the parallels with the children of Israel coming to Kadesh Barnea. We follow in their footsteps oftentimes. We can ridicule them. We can uh, give them a hard time because of their unbelief, but we find out that um, we probably do the same thing as they did, right? Yeah. But today, it's only uh, only right for us to skip forward 40 years to whenever they finally do go into the promised land, okay? So whenever we come to Joshua chapter 1, 40 years has uh, went by since what we looked at last week. The fathers refused to go in. They died in the wilderness. Uh, Moses refused to uh, do what God had told him to do in the matter of smiting the rock and speaking to the rock. And because of that, as a leader in front of everyone, he didn't lose his salvation, okay? 
But because he didn't give God the glory as the leader in front of the people, he did what he wanted to do instead of what God had told him to do. He says, okay, you're not going to get to see the promised land. Yeah. Okay. So he died in the wilderness. He was able to look from the mountaintop and view over the land, but he was never able to enter in. And Joshua was chosen to take his place. One of the two, 12, one of those two out of the 12 that actually came back with a good report. Joshua and Caleb, right? Joshua was chosen to take the place. Imagine he's one of the two oldest people by a pretty healthy margin in the entire land, right? Because whenever they went into the promised land to spy it out the first time, those 12, remember I said that they were leaders amongst the people? They weren't sending them out as teenagers. Right. Okay? They were leaders. They were proven people. We would have figured they would have been at least 40 years old, right? Oh, yeah. Add another 40 years. These guys are like 80 now. But the oldest people below them is 60 and younger. So most likely they outrank everybody by at least 20 years, if not more. Okay? And so they're the oldest ones, and Joshua is the one that's going to be leading. He's going to be the military general. And that's what we find here in the beginning of uh, the book of Joshua. We'll go ahead and start reading in verse number 1. And we'll read the first 11 verses here just to get us uh, a little bit of a foundation where we're going. It says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now that's blunt enough, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them. Notice the, the wording on that. The land that I do give to them. Okay? He says, if they will listen to me, if they will go and uh, just trust me, obey me, I'm going to give it to them. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to do it of their own merit, their own ability. I'm giving it to them. They just have to follow me. They have to trust me. Anyway, um, which I do give them, even to the children of Israel, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you. As I said unto Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto thy father, to their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee, Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. Then Joshua commanded the officers and the people, saying, Pass through the host and command the people, saying, Prepare you victuals, for within three days ye shall pass over this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess it. Now, honestly, that passage, just 11 verses, 
is packed. It's loaded. If you look at it, this is God speaking to Joshua. He is reassuring him. He is preparing him. He is giving him some promises and some great truths for him to hang on to. Okay? Over and over, he says, I have given it to you. Past tense. It's already been done. It's as good as yours already. Okay? He tells him, I'm giving it to you. I have given it to you. It's yours. But why is that significant? Because they're not even in the land yet. They haven't fought a battle yet. They don't own anything in that land, yet God is saying, I have given it to you. Now, this is reminiscent of back whenever God was speaking to Abraham. Remember, God said to Abraham, I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants, right? And the only land that Abraham owned in all of the promised land, in all of Canaan, whenever he passed on, was the place that he bought for a burying place for his wife. Right? He bought a place to bury his wife. That was it. He didn't own any land there. But God says, I'm going to give it to you. And that's where it came in that Abraham believed God. And it's counted him for righteousness. We go on forward to a few others. Whenever Jacob came down to uh, Egypt, he says God's promised that he will give our people this land. So whenever I die, take me back and bury me in that land. And they did. They left Egypt. They went, carried his body up, and buried him up in Canaan. Whenever Joseph died, he says, one of these days God's going to lead us out into this land and whenever, I, whenever they do, whenever God does, take my bones and bury me there. And as the children of Israel were leaving out of Egypt, they took Joseph's bones back up here. Why am I going through all of this? Because they are believing God's word. And so God says, I have given this to you. I've been promising it to you since uh, Abraham. I tried to give it to your fathers. They refused to trust me and to believe me. Now it's your turn, Right? And he tells Joshua multiple times, uh, be thou strong and very courageous. Be thou strong and very courageous. Why? Because whenever we are seeking to serve God and to follow him and to trust him, it takes strength and courage. Because God requires faith. If everything made sense, if it was perfectly laid out before us, if it was the way that our human brains expected it to be, if it was the way that mankind did things, it would require zero faith. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But God requires us to follow his way, do it his way, allow him to be the one guiding, allow him to be the one in charge. And generally, he doesn't let us in on all the details. He doesn't tell us how it all works. He doesn't lay it all out before us. He just says, Trust me, follow me, and if we realize that God is good, that God loves us, that God can be trusted, we say, okay, God, I'm going to follow you. Mm-hmm. And that pleases him. Yeah. Because he's God. He should be trusted. He should be in charge, right? Yes. Do you like having uh do you like having your authority questioned? Or your intelligence question, especially by those who have no clue what they're doing. 
If you're like an expert in a specific area, if there's somewhere you just have a, an extreme amount of knowledge in and someone who has no clue comes behind and starts questioning you, does it kind of make you mad? Come through and try to do, tell you how to do your job and they've never done it a day in their life. Right? Or for parents, whenever your kids come through behind you and start questioning everything you do, whenever it's like, I've been doing this for years. Right? Yeah. And so that, that would make you mad, right? The reason I bring this out, God is not like us. Yeah. Okay? God is not like us. But here's the thing. How often is it that God, being God, knows what he's doing? And we're falling behind him questioning everything that he does. Wanting in on it, wanting to approve his plans ahead of time, wanting to tell him a better way of doing it, wanting to say, okay, God, before I'm going to trust you, tell me about this, show me, plan it out for me ahead of time so I can decide whether or not I trust you enough, whether or not you actually know what you're doing for me to follow you. Ring too, too true for anybody? I'm speaking from experience. Okay. And so that's what we like to be doing, right? Okay, so I need to get back on track here. So with Joshua and them, he says you need to be strong. You need to be very courageous because there are going to be plenty of things that is going to threaten to cause you to doubt, to fear, to turn back, to run away. That's what happened to the ones at Kadesh Barnea earlier is their fears trump their faith, right? They began to be fearful. They began to be doubting, and they ran away. And so he said, be strong and very courageous, but he didn't say do it because of who you are, because of the strength that lies within yourself, because you've got it figured out. He qualifies it with something else. He says, be strong and very courageous. Why? Because the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. That makes a huge difference, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. We look in verse number nine. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Joshua. To use a, a New Testament verse for an Old Testament passage, right? means the same thing. He says, Joshua, you're the leader of this group. They're going to whine and whinge and doubt and fear and all these different things. And you're going to have to lead them. But be thou very courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. Because I am with you. You have that promise. I am with you. I'm going to give you this land. I've been promising it all this time. I'm going to carry through. You're going to see it happen. You're going to be the one that divides it unto the people. So he's making promises. He is telling him ahead of time what's going to happen. Joshua just has to decide, do I trust God to make it happen? Right. Now, important part that I want to come to. Verse number seven, only be thou strong and very courageous that thou may observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded uh, commanded thee, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left. Okay, so now he has a commandment, right? Keep the law. But the reason I bring this out, why does God tell him to keep the law? Okay, you're right. That thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. So this goes back into what we were talking about with the purpose of the law. Correct? See, Joshua is already a child of God. Right. 
He's already following God. And God's saying, you're going to be facing a lot of things that is going to be difficult. Trust me, I'm with you. Follow me, even when it gets difficult. And one of the reasons you're going to need to be strong and courageous is because in all of those things that you go through, I want you to elevate my word, elevate my law, and keep my law. Not that you may be considered righteous, not that you may be saved, not that you might please me in some way, not that somehow you will earn my love or my affection or my admiration, but he says, if you keep my law, all of the commandments that I've given, turn not from the right hand or to the left, he says, if you do that, then you're going to prosper whithersoever thou goest. And so now we're getting into the place of why do we obey the principles and the precepts of the word of God, right? Because people try to make it that I am obeying in order to get God's attention, to earn my salvation, or that my good works outweigh my bad works, or that somehow this is going to cause God to look favorably at me, or this is going to impress him in some way, or so he will love me, or accept me as if we have to earn that in some way. Isn't that what people try to make it out to be? But instead here, we find that we're not trying to obtain God, uh, obtain salvation or merit God's love or favor, but it is a matter of faith. Whenever you're looking at God and who God is, we see him as being God our Father, the lover of our soul. The one who knows all things, is all-powerful, is in all places at all times, who will never leave us nor forsake us, all of these things, and we realize this about him. And so as a result of that, we put our trust in him, not just for salvation, but every area of our lives. Mm -hmm. And if God knows what, is do what he's doing, if he is good, if he loves me, if his ways are best, then the way that he has prescribed the principles and precepts of his word are good for me. They're healthy for me. And so whenever I look at his word and I keep his word and I keep his commands, it isn't to earn or to merit anything from him, but because I recognize that the things he has told me to do are good for me, it's going to get good results, right? Mm -hmm. And so whenever we obey God and whenever we follow his word, whenever we do the things contained within his word and live by its precepts, it isn't to earn anything. You say, well, it's to earn blessings. No, you're not earning blessings. It's that whenever you follow his will and you follow his word, the blessings are the results, not the reward. Right. That's a subtle difference, but it's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Because we look at it and we say, look, God, I did this, 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 and this. Where's my blessings? Where's my rewards? Isn't that how we do it? Yes, that's Okay, And we're very transactional in our relationship with God. I do this, God does that. We treat God like he's our genie or our concierge, and his whole purpose is just to fulfill our wishes. And so if we do a couple good things, we expect, okay, God, you owe me now. But the blessings are not a reward for obedience. The blessings are the consequences of the obedience. Because whenever you're obeying his word, when you're living life according to the instruction manual, right? 
you're going to get the outcome proscribed by the creator. So it's an outcome. It's not a reward. It's a result. Okay? So he tells Joshua, if you will obey me, if you will follow me, then this is the way that your life is going to go. This is the result that's going to come from it. I'm going to lead you here. I'm going to tell you to engage in this battle this way. I'm going to tell you how to go about marching around Jericho and when to holler and when to shout and when to blow trumpets and when to do all these things. And if you do all that, then not as a reward because marching around a city and blowing trumpets. Okay, I want to give you a, re- a reward for that. No, the result of that, the result of your obedience is it's going to lead to the place of blessing. It's going to lead to what I have already prescribed for you, what I've already laid out for you, and it's going to happen naturally as a result. So, if you order your life by God's principles, right? If you esteem them to be correct, to be good, to be favorable, to be desirable, and say, okay. It goes against the way my flesh would like to go. It goes against what society believes and teaches. But it is what God, my Father, said was good for me. So I'm going to trust God, my Father, because he has proven himself worthy. He has proven himself powerful. He's proven that he knows what he's doing. So regardless of whether I understand it or not, whether or not it makes sense to me, I'm still going to trust and obey. And as a result, I'm going to be proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And this is what God is leading the Israelites to do. And so he tells uh, Joshua here, it's going to be taking you some strength and some courage because it's not always going to make sense. Not everybody's going to understand It's going to take you making some hard decisions sometime when you want to go a different way for you to go God's way. But I assure you, if you go God's way, you're going to be happy with the results. Okay? So turn not from it to the right hand or to the left. And just a a thought that popped into my head, I always use the the, uh, illustration of the two ditches, right? Satan doesn't care if he gets you too far that way or too far that way as long as you're not going that way. Right? Turn not to the right or to the left because Satan doesn't care how he gets you off track as long as you're off track. You can get pulled too far into fanaticism in either direction. You can get pulled off into extremes in either direction, right? You can become a Pharisee over here on this side, right? Or you can go and live worldly and carnally on this side. God doesn't care if you're into asceticism or into lasciviousness. They're both destructive ways. He wants you to live according to his word, right? So don't go to the right or the left, um, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. The book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. This goes along with the New Testament uh, passage that says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Mm-hmm. What is he saying here in verse number 8? He's saying meditate on day and night. Be paying attention to what the word is. Be familiar with it. Know what it is so that whenever there's decisions that come up, when there's temptations that come up, you already know what my word says. 
and you're going to be already on that right track. You'll already be at the place to uh, deflect the, the fiery darts of the devil and all the snares that he puts before you. And you're going to continue tracking on the good way. Your way is going to be prosperous. And once again, that's not necessarily financial. I don't want to fall into this, you know, this prosperity gospel type stuff where, oh, it's going to be prosperous. It's going to be raining, you know, money from the skies. But God is going to prosper. He's going to see to it that the things in your life that need to succeed are going to succeed. Right? And it's not always the things that you want to succeed. It's going to be the things that he knows needs to succeed. Because there's some things in your life that's not going to be good for you. There's some things in your life that's going to cause you to fall away from God or drift away from God. And some of those things need to fail. And whenever those things fail, it keeps you close to God and on track with him. And that's a success. And so he is able to make thy way prosperous and thou shalt have good success. Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. I spent a lot more time on this than I intended to. Okay? I plan on going a lot of different places beside this. But this is what he's telling Joshua as he is getting ready to take the lead of this great congregation of people that have proven to be very hard-headed and very rebellious. Right? I would not want his job. And he's watched Moses get, I mean, roasted for the past 40 years, right? And now he's taking over. He's like, no, God, pick somebody else, right? But he steps in. He's going to do this job. And God says, you can do it as I was with Moses. I'll be with you. And he says, wait, I've seen how you were with Moses. And if you're going to be with me like you were with him, okay, I can do this. Right? Right? And Joshua is a great picture of the Christian life, of what it should be, of what it could be, right? And so anyway, he gets before this group of people, and he tells them, okay, uh, prepare yourself. In three days, we're crossing the Jordan River. Now, all of the group that he has here, they didn't see the Passover. They didn't see the plagues in Egypt. They didn't see the Red Sea part. And if they had, they were young at the time, right? Right. And so most of these people don't remember any of this. Most of them never seen it. And so now they're going to, they, they've seen God provide for them for 40 years in the wilderness. They're going to see him part the Red Sea, or not the Red Sea, the, the Jordan River, and they're going to go across the Jordan River now. Mm-hmm. But God's going to lead them to Jericho. And um, I'm debating just for the sake of time here. I want to look at chapter number two. I'm not going to read it all just for the sake of time. But whenever they cross, when they're getting ready to cross over, they're camped over against the Jordan and they send out two spies again. They didn't send out 12. (laughs) They sent out two. And I'm not sure all the reasoning behind all of it. They didn't say go and spy out the entire land. They said go out and spy out our first conquest, the first city. And so they go over across, they go into Jericho. Jericho is a mighty walled city. This is going to be their first, uh, their first battle that they're seeing in the promised land. This is going to be their first victory in the promised land. And they get in the city and with the two spies, their location is compromised. The king or whoever over the city finds out that they are there, right? Finds out they are there and is hunting for them. 
closes up all the gates, has them pinned in the walls. The walls that were meant to keep them out are now keeping them in. And then we're introduced to a woman by the name of Rahab. Okay, verse number four of chapter two. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said thus, there came men unto me, but I wist not whence they were, whence they were. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate, when it was dark, that the men went out. Uh, whither the men went, I wot not. Pursue after them quickly, for ye shall overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order upon the roof. And the men pursued after them uh, the way to Jordan under the fords. And as soon as, uh, as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. And now listen to these next verses. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land and that your terror is fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now, therefore, I pray you, swear unto me by the Lord, since I have showed you kindness, that you also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. And so as we get to this passage, we come to Rahab the harlot, as she's always known. So we know what a harlot is, right? If we were to compare her to the law, how many of the laws, just in the name Rahab the harlot, how many of the laws do we know that she's broken? We know she's committed adultery, right? You could consider that stealing as well. Coveting. She lied in the passage we read. She is in a pagan nation, so that she broke the first three, right? So basically, she's broken the entire law. She's broken the Ten Commandments, right? And so if anyone was being saved, if it was by merit, it wouldn't be her. Right. Even out of the entire city of Jericho, she is probably your worst specimen in Jericho. I mean, we might look at her and we and look at the people there and say, well, they're all pagans. They're all wicked. They're all amongst the pagans. She wasn't even a good pagan. Even the pagans wouldn't have liked her. Except for the sinful amongst the pagans. She was not a person of reputation. She was not uh, the elite of society. She wasn't the most moral character. But yet she is the one that was saved. So what we find is in the Old Testament... A sinner that is saved by grace through faith. Because in the passage that I read here, the two spies came and she says, I have heard about your God. I've heard who he is. I've heard what he has done. And I know that he is the true and living God. I know he is bringing judgment upon this place. And I know that I am part of the condemned. And I am asking for mercy. 
when your God comes and brings judgment on this place. So what do we just see there? We talked about the Israelites. They were saved. They were saved down in Egypt, right? Because they were brought out. Now this is a pagan woman. This is a Canaanite. They get saved. She says, I have just heard. I haven't experienced it. Think about how many Jews experienced all these things and still doubted and still didn't believe. She says, I have heard. It's been told to me. All of our people are scared to death because we know your God is real and that he is with you and that he has given you this city and this land. And so she pronounces her faith in the God of Israel. She pronounces that she knows that she is a recipient of judgment and she asked to be pardoned. She asked to receive mercy, though she knows that judgment is is due her. As I was thinking on Rahab, I really think that Rahab is the Old Testament thief on the cross. You realize that she was sentenced to die within days of this? That all of her life she had lived contrary to God and at the last minute she acknowledges God for who he is and asks for mercy, and she receives it. And her citizenship is translated, okay? Is transferred. And so Rahab the harlot, we, we can continue forward. I'm not going to turn there for the sake of time, but in Joshua chapter 6, they start the siege on Jericho. The walls fall down. Her house was on the walls. And so I can imagine all the walls falling down except for where Rahab's house is. They're like, how are we going to know where to find Rahab? Yeah, it's the only place still standing. God did that. And they go and Rahab and all the people who has received her testimony, who has believed what she has said and entered into her house like Noah in the ark, is led out of that house to safety. And they come in amongst the Israelites and they are converted. They become Jews at that time. And something even more amazing and more important is Rahab the harlot becomes the grandmother of King David who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And God takes a Canaanite prostitute and puts her in the family of Christ, in the royal family. And it is through that bloodline that Jesus is born, the one that is going to take away the sins of the world. We continue studying up and we come to the book of Ruth. We may eventually get there in the study. I don't know. But we come to the book of Ruth and Ruth is shown mercy by a Jew by the name of Boaz who happens to have a Gentile grandmother by the name of Rahab. Why did Boaz show Ruth, the Moabites, so much mercy and grace? Because he had Rahab the harlot in his family tree. Right? You see how God's plugging these different people and these outcasts and stuff in here? And he's saying, it is not by works of righteousness which you have done. And just to prove it to you, I'm going to put the most unlikely candidates in my lineage. I'm going to show mercy not to the most upright and the most acceptable in Jericho, 
but I'm going to go and pick the harlot out of that bunch to show mercy and grace to. Right? You could argue and say, well, look at the works that she did. She hid the two spies. Okay? Anybody could have done that, right? Is hiding two spies going to erase all the sins that she's committed? Okay? If, if I was to murder someone, but then I saw the... I, I, before I was convicted, I was over at Tesco over here and I saw the parking warden coming through and I saw that your ticket was expired. I went and bought a parking ticket and put it on your car so you didn't get a ticket. Is that going to, is that going to cover up my murder charge? I come to the judge and say, but look, I kept Peter from getting a parking ticket. Yeah, so but you killed somebody. That might be a little bit far of a stretch, right? But you see that her sins, which were many were nothing compared to the grace of God. She didn't do anything to erase her sins, to cover her sins. She saw herself as guilty, as headed for judgment, and she confessed God to be her only hope and asked for mercy, and she received it. Everyone else was saying, I'm going to fight this off. I'm going to save myself, right? All the rest of the people of Jericho were fortifying the city. They were preparing for battle. They said, we're able to fight. We're able to overthrow. They didn't. But Rahab decided instead, I am going to believe. I'm going to trust. I'm going to plead for his mercy. And God says, okay, I'll take that. Not only will I save you, I'll save your family. Not only will I save you and your family, I will put you into my family. That's really cool, isn't it? And so this is what God does through Rahab. And so we see two different things here with this. The children of Israel are going into the promised land by faith. They're saying God promised us this land. He's already said we're going to get it. We're going to go in and possess it. And then Rahab, by faith, is saying all the gods that we have served, all the Canaanite gods, all the idols, all these things are nothing. God is the true God. I'm going to put all of my faith, all of my trust, all of my hope in him alone. And she was saved. Okay? And so we go ahead and go forward, and I, I'm out of time almost, but we go forward in this, and everybody's familiar with the conquest of Jericho, Right? God tells the people, for six days, march once around the city. Do it in silence. Have the priests going before you, all these different things. Go out, march around the walls of the city one time, go back to camp. Second day, march around the walls of the city one time, go back to camp. Now, if you were the Israelites and you heard Joshua say, this is our battle strategy, what would be your response? You're nuts. There is no way that's going to work. We're just brick builders, yes, but hey, you know, we know how to build stuff and these walls aren't going to fall down just because we march around them. We're not exactly armies. We're not warriors. We're not trained in conquest over cities, but we know this isn't how you fight a battle. And so for them to go and to march around the city once, each day for six days, they were doing something that made absolutely no sense to them. Yeah. They saw no way that it could possibly work. 
It went against all conventional wisdom. They felt stupid doing it. They were mocked and ridiculed. Could you imagine the people in Jericho? As they were shouting over the walls. My kids have watched Jericho, or not, uh, Veggie Tales, and they have like a reenactment of this. And they're like, <laughs> anyone else who's watched that, I don't know. But anyway, they're mocking, they're ridiculing, they're making fun of the children of Israel, saying, what are you doing? There's no way you're going to, you know, they're just out for a leisurely stroll around the walls. Yeah. Okay? But where does that apply to us? The gospel doesn't make sense. Y'all realize the gospel doesn't make sense? It's too easy. It's too simple. It doesn't fit the way that we think things should go. Mankind wants to work for his salvation. That's what makes sense. All the religions of the world are founded upon this premise that yes, there is a God. Yes, I have fell short of what he has demanded. And so there's some way I have to make it up. That's all of religion, right? That makes sense to us. So I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be as good of a person as possible. I'm going to give money to the poor. I'm going to attend church. I'm going to uh, you know, try to keep all these laws and precepts. I'm going to do everything I can to try to pad my case in my favor so that God will accept me. That makes sense to us. But the gospel doesn't make sense that God would come down to this earth, that he would be abused by his creation, that he would give his life, and that he would raise the third day, and that that death could be accepted by faith, applied to my account, and could cause me to be righteous, and every other person who believes upon him can be made righteous by that. What does he get out of it? Me? Me? That doesn't make sense. If I was God, praise the Lord, I'm not. Isn't that the way we think, though? If I was God, there's no way I'd do that. We try to do the math. We try to figure out, how does all this work? The same way that the people of Israel marching around Jericho for seven days by faith, trusting that God knew what he was doing when he gave the instructions and when he made the plan, and following through until the end and seeing that God knew all along what he was doing. And so right now as a Christian, I'm still marching around the walls. I haven't seen the victory with my own eyes yet. God said, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I have been saved. According to Christ, I am already seated above in heavenly places. I am as good as saved as if I was already in heaven. But if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm not in heaven yet. The walls haven't fell yet. But as soon as I close my eyes in death, the Bible says to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. When the walls fall down, I'm going to say it really looked stupid to a lot of people. I got mocked. I got ridiculed a little bit. There were times I questioned. There was times it didn't make sense. But I'm glad I trusted in Jesus. Yeah. And so on that seventh day, whenever those people marched around that wall seven times, and by the way, it wasn't a little tiny thing. It was been seven times around the wall. They were tired by the, that's something we take for granted. Mm -hmm. 
You realize when the walls fell, they went in and they overran the city and they slaughtered everyone. And they were wore out when they went in. God had all the odds stacked against them. They went in, possessed the city, and they knew from everything they'd experienced, it was nothing but God from beginning to end. There was no way that they could claim anything in all of that. And that's the way with salvation. But the very last thing I want to bring out here is that in that group of the children of Israel that seen all this, experienced all this, there was one man. Anyone know who he was? Mm-hmm. Who was he? Mm-hmm. Hmm? Achan. Achan. Y'all remember the story of Achan? There was one man by the name of Achan. And by the way, the command that God had given in chapter number six, whenever this was going on, Chapter number six, verses 18 and 19. And ye, and ye, in any wise, keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed. When you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it, but all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So God says, I'm going to give you victory over the, the land of Jericho. I'm going to cause the walls to fall down. I'm going to make you win there. This is going to be your first victory. You're going to see plainly that I am in charge, that my way is good, and that I am able to give you the land. And with this being the first victory, the first fruits are mine. That's a principle all the way through Scripture. The first fruits are God's. And so he says, don't touch any of the spoil. It's mine. I'm even putting a curse on the the city. It's never to even be inhabited or rebuilt. This is mine. And Achan says, I want to do it my own way. I don't trust what God has to say. I don't like what he has given me. I don't know that he is able to prosper me and to make my way successful. And so I'm going to heap to me the treasures of Jericho. I'm going to steal the things that don't belong to me. I am going to provide for myself. I'm going to bring the riches. I'm going to make the success because I don't trust God, right? After all that he has seen, he still doesn't trust God. He heaps up the the riches to himself. He takes it, hides it under the floor of his tent. The children of Israel are still kind of going off the high of just defeating Jericho so easily with God's help. Don't even inquire of God before they go to the next place. If they would have inquired of God, God would have said, you have some business to take care of first. But they didn't. And they went to fight against this little town of Ai. And they get defeated. Mm -hmm. And they're mourning and they're weeping and they're saying, we beat them and we failed here and we're just getting started. And so there's no way we can defeat the promised land. And God comes to Joshua and he says, you didn't ask me about it first. There's sin in the camp and you can't have success as long as this is still in the camp. Deal with the sin, and then you can have success. Mm-hmm. And so they deal with Achan. Achan troubled the entire nation of Israel, caused them to lose a battle. He himself died. His family died because of his unbelief. It wasn't that he took the gold, was it? His disobedience? It was because he didn't believe God. 
He said he basically followed the way of Cain. God says it's to be this way. He says, I don't like it. I'm going to do it the way that I want to do it. God says, eh, wrong answer. Still goes into salvation to this day. Mankind says, doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why I can't do this. I don't know why I can't do that. This seems fine to me. I'm going to do it my way. Forget it. Forget what God has to say. The Bible says there is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And all these people who have served their false gods, who have believed their false gospels, and were sincere about it, are going to find out that they were sincerely wrong. Because God has prescribed a way, and you must accept it by faith. And if you do not believe, if you do not accept it by faith, if you do not follow him by faith, then it's going to bring destruction. In the matter of salvation, you're going to lose your eternal soul because you have not put your faith and trust in him. In the matter of the Christian life, you can live however you want to. But if you choose to live outside of his way, outside of his plan, outside of his word and his law, then you're going to bring heartache and destruction in your life. The Bible talks about being saved, yet so as by fire. Okay? You find precepts in the word of God. He, he tells us principles. You look through Proverbs and you have great nuggets of truth and of wisdom. And he tells us in those good advice for how to live our lives. We find in the law things that he has prescribed and said, this is good, this is evil. We find in the New Testament things that he has said, do this and don't do that. And we say, who's God to tell us what to do? He's the one that only knows the way. And so whenever we follow him, when we put our faith in him, when we allow him to be in charge, he will make our way prosperous and we'll have good success. Whenever we say, no, I want to do it my way, whenever I decide I don't care what God has said, I don't believe that, I'm not going to follow that, I'm going to make my own road, we're going to see destruction. And so we can compare here, contrast Achan and Rahab, can't we? And Achan was extremely acquainted with God and the things of God and yet rejected it. Rahab was extremely acquainted with the things of the world, but whenever she heard the truth of who God was, she believed, and she was saved. It wasn't based on their merits. It wasn't based on their lifestyle. I mean, Aiken, he was a family man. He was just looking out for his family. Rahab was a harlot. One was saved, one was lost. And it was based on faith. Are you going to take God at his word about salvation? Only one way to be saved. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Not through the priests, not through sacraments, not through good deeds, not through good works. It is only by Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. It's the only way to be saved. And the only way to success and prospering in this life is by doing it God's way. Mm -hmm. So does anyone have anything to 
to add to or take away from or anything what we've studied tonight. Let me give you an illustration. Okay. okay. I think this will make it clear. Okay. Okay. Two different people that question God got different results. Okay. Whenever, uh, excuse me, whenever Zechariah was in the temple and God came and told Zechariah that Elizabeth was going to have a son, John the Baptist, mm -hmm. what was Zechariah's response? And so he questioned God. Yeah. He says, this can't be. I don't believe it. And so God responded by causing him to be mute mm. until the birth of the child, and they named him John, right? Yeah. He says, you shall be mute because you, because you doubted. Mm. Okay? And so you have one type of questioning, which is doubting. Yeah. It's whenever you say, God, you don't know what you're doing. Okay? Okay, then you have Mary. The angel came to Mary and says, you shall bring forth a son, call his name Jesus, right? And she responds by saying, how can these things be, seeing I know I don't know a man? She didn't say, God, you don't know what you're doing. She says, God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand. And so there's one that's doubt and one is seeking to understand. And God never condemns someone who's asking questions for understanding. Right. So there's a difference between asking questions and questioning. Right? Because Zachariah says, I don't believe it. That was the way he was questioning him. Mm -hmm. He was questioning God's ability and God's intelligence. Okay? So questioning God or questioning how God's doing it. And so Mary, she gets an answer. How shall these things be, seeing I know not a man? And he says, the Holy Spirit of God will overshadow you, and you shall become pregnant of the Holy Ghost, and the child that's within you shall be called the Son of God. Right? So she says, I don't understand. And Zachariah said, I don't believe. Yeah, that's the Two different things. Understand, yes. I guess in my question, maybe I could have taken different ten. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's understand. It's like 
most of the time I've asked questions, I've asked many of them why. That why is not to say I don't believe, I don't trust God did this, but it's just I need to clarification because in, in, in human mind mm. this seems not to make sense yeah. whatsoever. But again, I believe because mm. it's God, you have all abilities to do and 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 uh, please whatever mm. I want to do. It's just yeah in human sense like how possible can God yeah. do this? But it is God. Yeah. It, right. He he's done it. Mm-hmm. There's testimony it's written down. So it's just that human mind's like, how, why? Yeah. Okay, most of the, my question would be why. Yeah. Trying to know why, what the, was the reason behind God doing these things. Yeah. yeah, and that comes down to the heart. Yeah. Okay, because if, once again, if you're, see, if you're asking why, because you're seeking to understand or you're confused or you're having trouble, sure. then God is... Touched with the feelings of our infirmities, right? Mm-hmm. He knows what it's like. He is uh, very pitiful toward us, right? And so whenever we're struggling, we're having trouble, and you're saying, God, I don't understand. God, how could this happen? Mm-hmm. Why did you let this happen? And you're legitimately wanting to know, not that you don't trust him, but it's that you're confused in your circumstances. That's different than saying, how could you let this happen to me? Yeah. As if you were the one in charge. And instead, it's an accusation instead of a, a yeah. question, a true desire for knowledge. And so, yeah, it comes down to our heart whenever we're questioning, whenever we're asking, because we all question God. Actually, our too. Yeah, our, yeah, our heart, our motive, very closely interlinked there. Um, you look through the book of Job, you've got a similar thing going on. And Job, I think there's times that he kind of, he, he walks the line. I mean, he's back and forth. Yeah. Because some of the things he's getting a little bit too far one way, he's getting a little too hostile toward God. But then there's other times that he's just in his pain, and of course he's in a lot of pain. And God is very merciful, understanding, long-suffering with mankind in our pain. But whenever mankind starts shaking his fist in God's face, saying, you didn't do it the way I think you should do it. I don't approve of what you're doing you have put yourself over him, then you got a problem. But whatever you're coming to him as your father and saying, Dad, I just don't understand. Sometimes he's going to give you understanding. He says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth liberally and upbraideth not. And so you come to him and say, God, I, I need understanding. I need wisdom. I need to, to see what's going on in this. Sometimes he'll give you that. But then there'll be other times he's going to say, you're not that place yet. You're not ready to understand this. Just wait a little while. And I know, like with raising children, <laughs> that there are times whenever they don't understand what I'm doing. And I say, one of these days, whenever you're in my place, you'll understand. Because I've went through that. There's things I can remember whenever I was a teenager, I didn't understand. I'm like, what's wrong with that guy? And then now I'm like, makes sense. I understand what he was going through. I know what, he, you know, and so, yeah, it's that kind of a thing. Sometimes God will open up our understanding and give us insight into it. Other times we just have to accept that he is God and we are not. Anything else? Okay, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer.
call tonight. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. And we do thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for this time in your word. And I know we covered a lot of ground tonight, Lord, but I hope it's been uh, helpful and encouraging to those here, Lord. I know, Lord, so often we fall into this category of trying to figure it out, of trying to be in charge, of wanting to have things our own way, Lord. I just pray that we can just reset our minds and our hearts to know that you're in charge, that you know what you're doing, that you can be trusted. And Lord, that we would just put all of our all of our cares and concerns upon you just to allow you to be the one that's in control, allow you to write the story, allow you to guide our steps. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. And amen.